our, our serviceability to God, being serviceable to God. And so we, we need to look at that uh, through the first several chapters of this book. But I'm thinking, you know, in, in what way, in what way could, be, could we be serviceable to God? And, and, and many of you are, you know, and, and some of you in more than just one way. Uh, but uh, I want to take a look at something. In, in, our, in our serving God, uh, sometimes or oftentimes we come across uh, opposition. You know, uh, even, even pastors have opposition from time to time. And, uh, and just kind of like David and he had his, uh, 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 his Ahithophel, uh, sometimes our pastors have someone even within the church that turns out to be an opposing voice. And, and, and sometimes that's okay. You know, uh, iron sharpens iron. But there are some times when opposition occurs when a church tries to do a good work. And, uh, and we find opposition when uh, it's just not people in the church that want to stop you, but it is uh, it is things outside of ourselves. You know, uh, the Bible talks about then in a world that we have opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, uh, you know, the, the world has its, has its uh, external forces put upon you. Uh, the flesh has internal forces put against you. And then the devil is that supernatural force that comes against you. And all of these kind of weigh in on you. And then you're left with no recourse. And you think that the, all the armies of hell have, are opposing you. So that's what we want to deal with today in this uh, fourth chapter. We're skipping the third chapter of, of Nehemiah. Uh, if you'll take a look at the third chapter, by the time I read all these names, I would be dizzy. So uh, let me, let me, let, let's just let, let this suffice to say that, that all, all these people that are mentioned in, in chapter 3, and chapter 3 is an important part of the book, but it is this one person stands beside another person. And that's the important thing. One person stands alongside of another person, and each person does his or her job. And, and that's what a church ought to be doing. Each person standing alongside of each other doing our job. But then we come to chapter 4. So let's look at chapter 4, the first 14 verses. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and, marked, and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Let me just, let me just say this, that the stones that were people used to build walls, that when those stones were burned, they, they, they began to crumble. So you cannot reuse them. Uh, so it's like picking up a stone and just picking up a pile of dust. Because they would just crumble in your hand. And he says, can they, can they use these, these uh, dusty rubble stones to build the wall? Verse 3 says, now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him. And he said, even, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Then Nehemiah prays. Verse 4. 
And this is called an imprecatory prayer. I'm going to be talking about this later, but it's called an imprecatory prayer. It is a prayer that, uh, Lord, this guy's really upsetting me, and let me tell you how I feel about him. And that's an imprecatory prayer. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return the reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forget their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Uh, That's a a tough prayer. (laughs) We normally don't pray prayers like that. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords and spears and bows." When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Well, you know, I couldn't think of a better passage to read than in light of what's happening in today's world. Let's pray. Father, there are just times when we we need to stand firm. And uh, Lord, as has been said, uh, sometimes uh, we need to quit doing something and just stand there. Lord, teach us to stand firm even in the face of opposition. And Father, our world is filled with, with, with opposing voices. Father, there's a cacophony of noise out there and, 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 and hatred and malice toward those who would put their trust in Jesus. Lord, toughen us up. that we may be the men and women that you have purposed for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. In our beginning this message, I believe it would be good, to, uh, our, if, good for our benefit to consider why there was so much opposition to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, why were these people upset? I mean, just trying to replace a city, the walls of that city. 
Why would people be upset about that? Uh, there are three specific names mentioned in this book that we need to look at. Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and there's a third name given in chapter 2 and verse 19, and it's Geshem the Arab. And before we close this list of men, I think we need to look at there is, besides these three men and, and, and the people that accompany them, there's another group of people that began to oppose them, and they are called the Ashdodites. Now, who are the Ashdodites? They are the old nation of the Philistines. So we're going to put a map up here on the screen for you to look at. And uh, I, I hope that I can make sense out of this for you. Uh, so uh, uh, so let's, let's be more clear as to where these adversaries are from. You can see this is Nehemiah's route or route that he was taking. Uh, let, me, let me kind of go this way so I can look up there. My, my head doesn't turn as well as it used to. But, uh, do you see where Damascus is at? If you go just below Damascus, just a, before you get to Jerusalem, but just below Damascus is where Sanballat is from. And he, he lived in an area called Samaria. Now, you're familiar with Samaria from John chapter 4. We talk about the Samaritan woman. Well, that would be the area between Jerusalem and Damascus. Damascus is in Syria, but be, below Damascus and just north of Jerusalem uh, is Samaria. And to the, to the uh, south of, to the south, way down south below Jerusalem would be a guy by the name of Geshem and the Arabs. And to the east of Jerusalem would be a fellow by the name of Tobiah and the Ammonites. And to the west of Jerusalem would be the Ashdodites or the old Philistine nation. So you see that Jerusalem is surrounded by the enemy. It is surrounded in, in, all, in all corners. It's surrounded by the enemy. These people hate them. So the natural question is, why all this opposition? First of all, it was a matter of political power and expediency. A, a revived Jerusalem, politically a revived Jerusalem would pose a threat to Sanballat's control of Palestine. You see, Sanballat, who is in Samaria, just south of Damascus, but north of Jerusalem, Sanballat was kind of like the main political figure there. And you know, sometimes when you're the big duck in the pond, you don't, you don't want to be replaced by anybody. And so he's not, he's not real excited about Nehemiah being there because Nehemiah is beginning to build up this city. But why would that bother him? Well, because there's not just a political expediency there. There is also something that is about money, economy, the markets. A restored Jerusalem, one that is to be inhabited and and walled. You see, right now, Jerusalem is just a pile of rubble. People are living around it, but nobody's living in it. 
Why would you want to live in rubble? So people are not living in it. They're living around it, but not in it. But if they restore Jerusalem, it poses a, it poses a financial problem for Samaria. Because it would attract a greater traffic of merchants than Samaria would. People would start, the, the, the merchants would be going, passing through Jerusalem rather than Samaria. As one commentator stated, a powerful Jerusalem means a depressed Samaria. <clears throat> the thinking is this, the highways that link, now let's go back to our map. The, the highways that link, do you see where the Tigris and Euphrates River are at? Way, at, way up north up there, where the word Medo-Persia is written. That Tigris-Euphrates area, there, is, there are highways that used to come down that way. Maybe they still do, but come down that way, and they would pass right through, they would pass right through uh, Samaria, and the hub would be in Jerusalem. Not only that, but people coming from Egypt. You see where the Nile River is at? Northern Africa there? People coming north out of Egypt. Guess what the main stop would be? Jerusalem. Not Samaria, but Jerusalem. So everywhere you're going. And if you were coming from, if you were coming from Philistia and heading across west to east, where are you going to stop? Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the hub, and by that being built up again, it would pose a financial hardship for Samaria. Right now, the, people, the merchants are stopping in Samaria because there is no Jerusalem. And that's, that's why we have this political problem, and we have an economic problem. And that's why they have opposition. In our text beginning in verse 1, we read, Sanballat mocked the Jews. His opposition to what the, the chosen people of God are doing is brought, is, is brought in with these words of contempt. If, if he could lessen, if Sanballat could lessen or eliminate the high morale of the builders, then the, construct, then the reconstruction of the walls is what? It's over. If, if, we, if we can diminish someone's, someone's morale, whatever they're doing, it kind of puts a halt on things, doesn't it? So that's what he was wanting to do. And, you know, that tactic is used even today. You know, let's destroy people's morale, and therefore they will quit doing what they're doing. How often has someone said to you, oh, you go to that church. There it is all of a sudden, you know. I had one guy tell me, he says, uh, when he, he asked me, he says, uh, he says Pat, what, what do you do for, for a living? I says, oh, I'm, a, I'm a minister. And he says, uh, what, what denomination? And I says, Baptist. He says, what kind of Baptist? I says, Southern Baptist. He said, oh, one of those. Then he starts telling me jokes about Southern Baptists. But you go to that church, my friend. You folks are so traditional. You're so dogmatic, irrelevant, old-fashioned. 
My friends, of course we're old-fashioned, but so is two plus two equals four. I'm not, I'm not wanting to take us back to the last century. You know, when I'm doing ministry, I don't want to take us back to the last century. I want to take us back. My goal is to take us back 2,000 years to the first century. Let's get back. Let's get back to where Paul says, preach the word. Be instant or be ready in season and out of season. They may say that our music isn't contemporary enough. Folks, the relevancy of Christian music is not based on whether you like it or I like it. Ask yourself this, does God like it? Paul says, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. There is nothing wrong with these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What is theologically wrong with that? Oh yes, we can't dance to it. But we can praise God with it. Folks, I'd rather hear that than someone get up and jump up and down saying, drop kick me, Jesus. I'm not interested in what's contemporary or what's old. I'm interested in what honors God. We'll not tear down the walls of the church in order to accommodate something just because it's new and shiny. Ask yourself, does it pass the litmus test of these specific doctrines? The infallibility of Scripture, the Trinitarian view of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the sinless perfection of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily physical resurrection of Christ, the ascension and the exaltation of Christ, the absolute and total sovereignty of God, and the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone. Those are the important issues, not just because it's old-fashioned, but because it's biblical. These walls of the Christian faith must not be torn down. Our job is to ensure that this church will continue to build upon those walls of truth until the day of the Lord comes to take his the day the Lord comes to take his bride. But there are Sambellas and Tobias and others like them. Both Nehemiah and the Jews and the church today will have to stand and face those who demoralize, demean, combat, and criticize the church of Christ. It is they who criticize who would hope to bring the church to a halt. Just as it was in Nehemiah's time, so it is today. Contempt and criticism, the two evil twins of pride. It reminds me of a poem. A little seed lay on the ground and soon began to sprout. Now which of all the flowers around it mused, shall I come out? The lily's face is proud and fair, but just a trifle cold. 
The rose, I think, is rather loud, and then it's fashion old. The violet is all very well, but not the flower I'd choose. Nor yet the Canterbury bell, I never cared for blues. And so he criticized each flower, this supercilious seed, until it woke one summer's morn and found itself a weed. So let's look at how Nehemiah was able to turn discouragement and criticism into confidence. Look at verse 4. He turns to God in prayer. And our text reads this. He says, Hear, O our God. In verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah tells God of all that the enemy is doing to frustrate the work of God's people. He says, he talks about their reproach, their iniquity, their demoralizing the workers. This type of prayer where God is asked to bring vengeance and judgments are called imprecatory prayers. Uh, I'm not saying that we should always offer up an imprecatory prayer, but sometimes imprecatory prayers are, are, are essential for us to stay sane. What we may ask is the benefit of Nehemiah's imprecatory prayer and ours. Let me just say this. You ever just get mad? Just, just really get mad. And you, and you, in your madness, you don't know what else to do. So you, 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 you go to the Lord and you bow down in prayer. And, and you're just so upset. So you start praying to God one of these imprecatory prayers. And here's what happens. First of all, it brings calm. It brings calm out of crisis. You know, it's better for me to go to the Lord with anger than it is for me to go to you in anger. But it brings calm out of crisis. Haven't you noticed that when you pray about a matter that really frustrates you, that you, that you, uh, that you are able to deliver your emotional agonies to God? That your anger soon subsides and self-control takes over. You know one of the things that frustrates me? I think that when I'm driving my car, I should be the only person on the highway. Because I drive perfectly. It's everybody else that's wrong. And they, I tell you what, They just frustrate me. I said, where did you get your driver's license? You know, if if you're on the highway and you're going along at 70 miles an hour on a highway and there's a ramp that kind of merges into the highway, they're expecting me to stop so that they can get on. And if there's a tractor trailer to my left, I ain't going to. I'm not going to move over. You know, and it happened. I said, What's wrong with you people? All of a sudden, you, just, the frustration just builds up and rage. And all of a sudden, you get this feeling that other people's behavior should not affect your own. You start talking about, to God about it. And all of, that, that, that crisis turns into calm. There's a, there's a second benefit or advantage to praying to God about things that really bug you. But telling God whatever the issue might be 
that the potential for gossip seems to be thwarted. It's always better, folks. It is always better. If you're going to gossip about something because of you're upset about it, it's always better to gossip to God than to your neighbor. Because he keeps secrets while apportioning gentleness. Do you ever notice that when you're upset at somebody and you want to just say some stuff about them, that when you talk to God about it, that God never shares it with anybody? Look at verses 7 through 9. We read of the plan of the enemies of Nehemiah that they put together. In verse 8 it says, all, listen, all of them conspired together. The north, the south, east, and west, all around Jerusalem, they all conspired together. So let's apply this to the church. Let's apply this to this church. The whole host of hell has been alerted of the continued advancement of the church, even in spite of opposition. Even though the enemy comes against you, you know, it just seems like the church continues to flourish. The church of the world today continues to flourish. There are people in persecuted countries that you never hear about, but the, the rise of Christianity, the church is growing. And even though there's opposition and persecution and affliction, the church continues to grow. Even, even in this country, when people say, oh, that's, that's terrible speech. The church continues to grow. So what do we think about this? I'm reminded of the account when the king of Aram, the enemy of the prophet Elisha, has surrounded the city of Dothan. Now, by the way, Dothan is in the tribe where Manasseh would be, so it would be the northern part closer to the, closer part to the, to the uh, Sea of Galilee. It would be closer up that way. But from Dothan, they were, the, the king of Aram was trying, to capture, was trying to capture Elisha because Elisha knew all of his moves because God was telling them. And so this was upsetting the king of, of Aram. So he says, we got to get this guy. But let's, let's read from, from 2 Kings chapter 6. Let me read this for you. Of, they, they, had surround, they had surrounded Elisha. Thousands and thousands of troops from Aram had surrounded Elisha. But in 2 Kings chapter 6, listen to this. It says, Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And a servant said to him, said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Friends, listen. Whatever evil may come against us, keep in mind we are the church of the living God. 
Of this we can be assured. Those who surround us with heaven's chariots are more than those who assail us with fearful threats. Each morning when you awake, we, the army of God, are to clothe ourselves as fit for battle. Our loins girded with truth, a breastplate for righteousness, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, taking up our shield of faith, putting on the helmet of salvation, and removing from our sheaths the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Nehemiah knew the principle for success. It is prayer that brings us to action. When Israel grew weak from fear, in verses 10 through 12, Nehemiah stationed the people with their swords, spears, and bows ready for action. Church, we've got work to do. There are walls to build, walls of doctrine for us to build upon. We've got a church to build up. We've got lives to build up and disciple. We've got a foundation of truth to build upon. Church, let's ready ourselves for the task. Our enemy would love for us to give up. Our pastor search committee is beginning a fresh. Listen, I've been thinking about this. I was preparing this message. Our pastor search committee is beginning a fresh in acquiring resumes. I know that there are some, there are some who are ready for a pastor even now. But listen, why settle for a Saul when God has a David for you? You need a man who will lead you, not one who will bleed you. You need a man who is. Who, who God is, way, is wanting to pour a whole horn full of fresh oil upon his head, not some, just some small vial where a little dabble do you. Church, now is the time to stay the course. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Do not attend your ear to the voice of doom who only seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. There are adversaries. We may not see them, but they are out there. They cause us to be impatient and worrisome, fearful, anxious. They deplete our morale. They hold us captive to, 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 to lousy thinking. Don't let the enemy have his way. Jesus Christ has provided something for us. Think of this. Jesus Christ has brought you out of that darkness, has brought you into light. He has, he has, he has clothed you, robed you in His righteousness. You are His child. You are seated with Him in heaven's places. You are in Christ at God's right hand. You are His child. If he has made the earth and creation his footstool, he has put you by his side. I ask you today, my friend, are you one who is seated 
with Christ at the Father's right hand. Above all worry, above all opposition, above all oppressors, even, even if difficult times come your way, do you find yourself not living under the circumstances but living over them? You can only do that through Jesus Christ. If you do not know Him as your Lord and your Savior, what a wonderful day this is today to come to that realization that in Christ you become a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away, new things have come.